Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. About 12 years ago, I showed up to our offices in Melbourne, only to set off the burglar alarm. That's because it was Melbourne Cup Day and the horse race that stops the nation literally stops Victoria because it's a public holiday there. Now, one of my colleagues who was supposed to tell me about this is Shay Russell, who is our new commodities investing expert at South Bank Investment Research. Shay, why didn't you tell me I have the day off? <laughs> I completely forgot. Also, too, it's un-Australian, to, oh, sorry, un-Victorian to not take the Monday off the day before. Because Melbourne Cup Day falls on a Tuesday, I wouldn't have been there on the Monday. That was the warning. Well, that was when you should have given me the warning. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm sure Nigel Farage's co- uh, uh, followers and, and the followers of Fortune and Freedom absolutely love horse racing. So what I want to ask you about first is your experience in following the Melbourne Cup, I mean, the actual physical cup from the creation or even before the creation, from the point of it being sort of a bit of metal under the ground yep. to the point of it being held up at the horse race. Can you tell us about that that journey and that story? Oh, look, that I'm not going to lie. That is so super cool to people who are in horse racing. Uh, so basically each year a certain miner in Australia gets to be um, the one who provides the gold for the Melbourne Cup. Uh, and that's actually a 12-month process. And the Cup is made 12 months in advance as well. So the 2023 Cup is currently being shot for, um, you know, for, for filming for next year. So that's how far in advance these things are filmed. Um, There's something like 100 hours it takes to craft the cup. I've actually been in the workshop where they craft it, Um, but it's, so I'm a little bit of a fangirl about this. I'm not even into it. I'm fangirling properly. Uh, It's a really cool experience to see it come from the mind, work out how long it takes to get out and get on a track. That's actually the quick process. It's when it gets to the craftsman shop, um, because it's all done by hand, none of it is done by machine. Um, that takes hours and hours and hours. And one of the most interesting things about it that I've found is that um, the the gold in the cup is actually spun from a flat sheet. And each year they only produce two sheets: one to practice, and one's the actual cup. There's no, there's no, there's no. You don't get a second chance at this. So you really got to get it right the first time. Uh, and the guy who's been doing it, the spinner, a guy named Sparrow. He's been doing 76 years old, and I think he's been doing it for something like 52 years. Uh, so it's an incredible experience. Uh, it's also absolutely awesome to go hang out in the marquee, hold the Melbourne Cup, and drink and celebrate horse racing as well. But you didn't focus on the part that you're supposed to focus on, Shay, which is when you had to go into the bowels of the swan zone and experience <gasps> the heat and the humidity at the bottom of the mine where the gold came from. So I've got gold from the bottom of that mine. Check it out. These are my favourite rocks. Um, so basically these have come from the Fosterville gold mine. I might have to send a separate shot there. This is like the nerdiest thing you can do on camera, but that's tiny, tiny amount of gold, probably worth about $5. Um, look, that has got to be up there with one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had in my life. So the Fosterville mine that you're referring to, which is in the Victorian gold fields, um, is one kilometre deep. And it's a, sorry, it's 1.5 kilometres deep, but I only went one kilometre deep underground. But it's actually a decline mine. So basically you spiral down like that. And believe it or not, it takes about 45 minutes to get to the bottom and there's one road in and one road out. And the amount of times when I went down, they say, look, we estimate 45 minutes up and back each side, but they double the time because if a truck gets stuck, you've got to wait. And there is nothing more freaky than knowing you're 800 metres underground and there is a seven-ton freaking Caterpillar truck in front of you and you just have to wait. 
Um, one of the things that will freak you out when you do go underground is the sheer humidity. Now, you're um, in the northernmost part of Australia. Well, not the northernmost part, but it gets hot and humid where you are. Um, underground is hot and humid, and basically the temperature increases with, I think it's every, it's, it's five degrees with every sort of 200 metres that you travel down. So it does get hot really quickly, and there are, it, it gets really hard to wear about 10 kilos of safety gear and expect it to trudge around in rocks. Compounding all of this is mines are full of freaking water. Nobody tells you about this until you go down for the first time. This is because obviously they've got to hose things down, pump things up. It's used in the cooling systems. So you get these enormous gumboots on your feet, but basically all the, um, the bowels of the mine, the, the bottoms of them are just clay. So not only have you got 10 kilos of recovery gear on you, but you've got to lift your feet with enormous amounts of effort to step in and out of the clay. It's exhausting, and I can't believe people get to do it for a living. Was that enough? It sounded terrible. <laughs> I loved it. I, I can't wait to get back down there, actually. Let's, uh, let's move on to, to your new project with South Bank Investment Research, which is all about commodities, unsurprisingly. <laughs> As I see it, you're trying to fight the curse of our publishing industry, which is the fact that people are interested in the, the last boom, the boom that's already happened, the boom that's in the news, when as good investors, they should be interested in what comes next, the next boom, the upcoming one. Now, commodities are not you know, the, the mainstream booming news story at the moment, and yet you're suggesting people should invest there. How are you going to persuade them to pay attention to what they should be looking at? Oh, I hadn't thought about how I needed to persuade people to do it. I just thought I had a cool story to tell and I hoped people listened. Um, I think basically the, the reason, the com most compelling reason to invest in commodities is actually already all around us. Um, you, you know, we, we keep hearing governments talk about the energy transition and I know we're sort of going to touch on this in a little bit more detail later. Um, whether the energy transition happens or not, I'll save that for a moment. Regardless, there is a $50 trillion wall of money moving that. So that is your first indication that it is going to happen in some sense. Uh, and you don't want to miss that. And the amount of resources that is going to take, we actually haven't discovered all of them yet. So I don't know how the governments think we're going to hit these 2050 targets, but we, there is just an insane volume of uh, resources required. A classic example is we're using about $28 million tons, 28 million pounds of copper per annum this year or last year. Uh, by 2035, it's estimated we're going to need 50 million pounds of copper uh, in order to meet the, um, in order just to meet the market. This isn't for what comes next for the next phase of the energy transition. Now that's nearly a doubling in the amount of copper that the market's going to need uh, each year. But the problem is, is we haven't brought enough new minds on life to even think that that's a possibility. So the reason why, my most compelling reason is there is an absolute mismatch between goals and the actual facts of what we've got in the ground. What changes there? Because so far governments, that, that wall of money have been all about the demand side, you know, electric cars and electrification of everything and, and all of the, um, the, the solar panel side of things, the wind side of things. That's all on the demand side for commodities. The, the move into permitting new gigantic mines hasn't really happened yet. So do you think that the, the current state of things where the demand is huge and the commodity prices boom continues? Or do you think there's going to be like a, a, an opening of the floodgates and a huge amount of mines are going to be permitted by governments as they acknowledge the fact that there's going to be a shortfall and, and that's where the boom will be instead? Look, I, don't, I think this might be a chicken or egg scenario. Um, basically, as I said, we don't have enough of what's happening and there's actually increasingly um, 
tight ESG regulations that are slowing down the permitting process. Now, we've recently seen uh, the UK enacting um, the energy bill. They're talking about regulatory accelerators. That's basically to help boost um, oil and gas field um, exploration out in the North Sea. Uh, I think we're going to see that happen, but I don't think it's going to be until the government realises some sort of supply crunch or supply shock from the supply side of the system. Um, Governments aren't particularly well known for being proactive. I think they're going to need some sort of shock to the system. Oh, we've run out of this, we've run out of that, or a major component comes offline. Um, Maybe with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that has spurred some, um, basically convinced governments that they do need to hurry and secure a few things. Classic example is nickel. The world will survive without Russia's nickel, but it has been a shock to the system. What are we going to do without it? Now, that's an important metal, but it's not the most critical one. So, again, I think it'll be chicken and egg, and it might be sort of this neck and neck race, but I don't see supply catching up to demand for a good decade. Those are very different investment sort of propositions, though. One being, say, an explorer that's found a huge resource and we know that it's going to be approved because there's this huge shortage and government are acknowledging it. But on the other hand, we've got the government is is constraining supply and therefore the companies that have vast mines that are producing are going to see the value of those mines skyrocket because there's no new supply coming online. That's, I think, Rick Rule's thesis in a recent video you did with him. Which of those two are you focusing on then? Are you focusing on the explorers that have secured a resource or, or the producers that are going to have a huge jump in their cash flow? Uh, or look, I want to try and capture all three along the way because all three can provide benefits to investors. The difference is all three come with uh, risk. So my specialty is actually basically picking explorers that haven't found anything yet. Uh, the problem is they come with enormous risk and a lot of shareholders don't like them. That's, you know, you know that's what you go there for, those triple digit, quadruple digit gains. Um, but producers that have got a good cash flow, one of the things that you're going to find they're going to do is they're going to go out and target high quality explorers that are in the process of developing a resource. Um, so it's sort of, again, it's about looking at the risk spectrum uh, uh, at what's, it's about looking, sorry, I haven't had a lot of coffee. Um, it's about assessing the risk spectrum and looking for good quality companies along there rather than just saying, this is my sole focus. Commodity markets at the moment are, are in a bit of chaos. Um, they're spiking and crashing all over the place and, and it's a bit of a mess. Who do you blame for that instability? Is it a Russia story? Is it a lack of investment story? Is it a, a renewables restraining investment story? What's the cause behind the instability so far? That is an excellent question, actually. Um, I think the, the the story behind the instability, like if you look at nickel, for example, um, that wasn't like that, but that was in part a reaction to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, but also to it was because a cheeky producer tried to take advantage of the market and tried to get, you know, basically tried to put the trade in his favour. Uh, and the LME did everybody a disservice by not asking him to top up his margin call early on. So I think we go, we are seeing opportunistic trading happening there. Let's not go down to the spoofing and the trade manipulative conversation, but it's definitely we are seeing traders trying to push their book. So at the end of the day, they're not really interested in manipulating the market. They're interested in benefiting their book and their book only. Um, Look, again, geopolitical tension is certainly um, putting certain traders, making traders wary 
of where certain metal supplies are going to come from and you know especially in the base metals market um copper for example most traders operate on the idea that five percent could fall offline at any given time simply because one of the biggest mine um copper mines around is so old that it's always offline it's either flooded or there's industrial action um, and I think the traders are starting to factor in that there is increasing instability in the market. And they're, you know, for lack of a better word, they're trying to hedge their bets. Uh, and this is coupled against the fact right now is that we've got this bearish sentiment with the US economy slowing down and the Chi uh, Chinese economy slowing down. Now, with those two slowing down, that does take the wind out of the sails of the commodities market. Um, but that leaves an element of room for surprise because while that's going to put pressure and drive prices down, if you see any positive news that suggests either economies are starting to turn around, that's going to, again, cause that volatility, but in the other direction, in the upside direction, because it's like, oh, growth, the growth cycle is back on. So there's not really one person to blame. It's more a myriad of factors all sort of converging together. You mentioned the geopolitical risk there, and you and I both used to work with Jim Rickards on this, and, and we're not geopolitical experts, but we are. Uh, sort of speaking to him, or we, we were on a regular basis. And I, I think he would say that the if the this crisis in Europe ends, and it has to eventually, that means there's going to be a huge change in commodity markets. But what do you think that change will be? In other words, if, if Europe loses another war to Russia in this winter, and they, they cancel the sanctions, and there's peace in Ukraine, do you think that would trigger a boom or a busting commodity? Oh, God, there's the idealistic side of me that says surely they can't be that stupid um, because, you know, I think you and I have had this conversation before and I've written about it a lot in the past. I might be annoying people. We, we've, the economy has run on the just-in-time supply chain for a very long period of time and COVID just proved that we need to move from just-in-time to just-in-case. Um, the, the, the Russian-Ukrainian war has also proven that just-in-time doesn't work. Um, so I would like to think, even though um, economic nationalism is actually expensive for consumers in the long run, I don't actually agree with it. But the problem we've got is we're trying to do too many things. So if we rely on commodities just being in the places we left them and our friendships with those countries, I think we're going to get a rude shock and availability might not be there when we need it. So my, the idealistic side of me says that no governments are actually going to heed the warning sides here. Uh, and in, in actually, you know, try and bring home supply chains or get some control over the supply chains, like, you know, the, uh, where possible. My problem is politicians are lazy uh, and they like to do things the quickest and cheapest way that gets the most votes. So maybe I shouldn't be so optimistic. The exception being Vladimir Putin there. He's, uh, he's a bit more of a long-term strategic thinker. Um, can commodities withstand the recession that's coming in my view that you just mentioned in the US, possibly even in China, probably in Europe, uh, economic activity is slowing down. Is that already priced into commodities? It's not so much can commodities withstand the recession. We need these things, whether we like it or not. It's can investors hold their nerve during the recession. Um, commodities are going to get hit hard. We've already seen the copper price come off a dollar, for example. Iron ore is back down to $100 per tonne. Um, coal still hasn't fallen, but that's um, what's happened because of what's happening in Europe. The, uh, the thing with copper, if you want to take, um, I, I look, I'm talking about copper because I've been having my head in a copper report for the past 24 hours. Uh, copper shot up really quickly quite recently and then traded along at four bucks 20 uh, a pound and then it shot back down again. Now, even though it's gone back down to, say, $3.50, that's quite a common pattern to see when it's reacting to economic 
uh, activity. So it's not that it's not going to withstand the recession. It's going to respond. Most commodities are going to respond quite quickly that a recession has either started or ended, but it's can investors ride out those periods of volatility with it. You and I were both around for the commodities boom in Australia. That was largely driven by China. And it seems to me that China's not going to boom in quite the same way again, based on demographics and some of the crises they've got at the moment and COVID and so on and so forth. Are you worried about uh, a lack of Chinese demand in the coming commodities boom? No, because we've forgotten there's many other countries around that are trying to industrialize their countries. India has got to be one of the biggest ones coming through the ranks. Uh, you know, there's still more than 50% of their population to urbanize something crazy, like 100 million people in, the, in that country alone don't have electricity. This isn't even in the ones with insecure electricity. It's India, um, you know, that's still a huge portion of it. Uh, so there, there's going to be an economic transformation in India. Uh, the other thing too that we can't rule out is uh, China's essentially making deals with tin pot dictators over in Africa because Africa is just as geological rich as most of North America and Australia is. So it makes sense for China to take their funds and go invest in Africa where the rules are a little bit different and they're a little bit looser. What that is going to do is that is going to drive industrialization of one of the most impoverished impoverished places on earth. So, no, I don't think demand, um, if China transitioning to a middle economy or a middle-income economy, I don't think that's going to reduce demand for commodities. I just think it's going to shift to different um, countries around the world. There'd be something very deeply ironic about the idea that however many decades of Western aid to Africa didn't seem to help the, the continent develop very much, but now the Chinese are trying the, the capitalist route of having business deals, and I bet they succeed far more uh, than dishing out money and, and food and whatever else that the West has been um, giving away in Africa. Let's dig into what I think is the most important part of the commodities, I guess, just investment thesis, which is the idea that supply lags demand by, it's about 10 years, depending on the resource. And that's what creates the boom and bust cycle and therefore the investment opportunity if you can figure out where in the cycle we are. Can, can you explain the mechanics of that and where we are in the cycle right now? I think it depends on the commodity. Iron ore, for example, is quite well supplied. Uh, and the reason it's now well supplied is because supply was lagging demand for quite some time. It, uh, look, depend based on the fact that the energy transition is happening, and this is going to be a metal super cycle this time. So we've seen an agricultural uh, super cycle, the, you know, 150 years ago, we saw an oil super cycle, uh, and then we saw uh, another oil super cycle as well, I guess, in the, uh, sorry, an iron ore super cycle in the 2000s. This one's very much a metals demand super cycle. So the lag isn't going to be as obvious to anybody who, unless you're watching the base metals market. Um, I think based on the number of investment I'm seeing flow into metals at the moment, uh, you know, for example, over the year two, over to 2020 and 2021, there was an enormous amount of money that um, went to gold and lithium explorers because they are they were very hot metals, gold for obvious reasons, lithium because of the uh, its ties to EVs essentially, uh, whether that's founded or not, I don't, you know, I think that story could change. Um, but I think we're looking at base metals lagging, uh, significantly lagging what future demand is going to be. The thing with base metal mines, though, is it can take on average 16 years for something like a copper mine to come online. Uh, gold can come online a little bit quicker than that, but gold's not a useful metal to society. It holds value. So I think we're still quite early in the phase of the, uh, uh, quite early in the supply phase. 
uh, sorry, we're quite early in the cycle. God, I'm, the editors are going to have a fun job with this one. Um, we're quite early in the cycle still in the fact that private equity isn't panicking just yet. That wall of money hasn't begun to move to exploration. Uh, I think we're going to see that wall of money start to move into exploration as governments get more aggressive on their ESG and their 2050 targets. But again, it, we could be 12 months, two years too early for that. What does it mean for investors, the, the fact that there's this delay uh, in supply to, to meet demand, that, that time it takes to get the mine online? Look, it's a bit of a cliche, uh, but, you know, this is like getting in at the ground floor or, you know, depending on how hard commodity prices fall in the meantime, the basement. Um, I th This is where it comes back to can commodities survive a recession, it's can, can investors survive a recession. Uh, if investors do start moving into the commodity sector right now, and obviously I'm quite heavy on the commodity sector myself, uh, it's about understanding patience and where you are in the cycle and that the cycle is quite new. Uh, and more than anything, doubling down on that don't take on risk if you don't want to see your portfolio half or even lose 80% because that is what's going to happen if you get in too soon. Commodities will get knocked around. They're extremely volatile uh, and it can make even the most hardened investors lose their nerve. But that volatility is also the, the key to unlocking all of the, the huge capital gains that are available there. Speaking of which, can you tell us a bit more about your upcoming launch of, of your new project with Southbank Investment Group? Yes, the whole reason why another Aussie was allowed to come join Southbank. Um, probably wanted a Canadian for commodities, but you got an Australian. It's the next, next, best, next best thing. Um, so basically, we are launching a dedicated commodities newsletter. Now, you, Nick, I know you've dabbled with uh, gold stocks over the years, so but I'm very excited to basically expand that out to not just base metals uh, and precious metals, but we're going to be covering the energy markets and also agriculture. And agriculture is sort of a little bit of a newfound love of mine. I've been writing about um, it, you know, things that impact the agriculture sector for the past two years. So the whole idea is it's not just targeting one sector of the market. And the reason for this is because it is a super cycle. Even though this is, I believe, going to be a metals-led super cycle, it is still going to take energy with it because you basically can't get metals out of the ground without diesel or gas. Uh, and also, too, agriculture is very much part of this story because uh, rising wealth uh, in certain countries, rising middle incomes, uh, as well as industrialization, allow better access to food or better access to farming. Uh, and this is before we even start factoring in the population growth story. So this is why we're covering essentially all three pillars of the of the commodity sector. Uh, I'm terribly excited about it. Uh, as I sort of said before, I'm not just targeting the producer side of it, although you know, there's, I'm hopefully going to pick up a couple of producers that are paying great dividends. I'm looking right down the bottom as well from near-term developers also to the, the, the super risky guys that are not, nothing more than a, a shovel and a plot of land. <laughs> a shovel and a plot of land. It sounds like a great investment to me. Um, Shay, thanks for joining us and to everyone home. Depending on when you're watching this video, Shay's project will be launching today. So if there is a link below this video, please do click on it and find out more. Thank you.